Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you order guacamole or queso? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbeth, your host again. Welcome to another episode. Today, we are talking with Dave Wilner. Dave and I worked together at Meta way back in the early days. And Dave was one of the first people to really write Facebook's content moderation policies. He then went on to other companies such as Airbnb and most recently was at OpenAI until he left earlier this year in order to spend more time with his family. His wife, Charlotte, is somebody who's also involved in this space. And we talk a little bit about that. But Dave has seen it all when it comes to content moderation. I love talking to him about these really difficult challenges, what this looks like. And we cover everything from some of the history of this work, some of the most difficult challenges that he faced, and what all of this looks like in the age of artificial intelligence and how he is looking at it. I also encourage you all, we only have this episode and two others left. And so I really want your thoughts as I'm trying trying to think about revamping the podcast for the 2024. And so if you don't mind going to the show notes and taking a really quick survey, I would really appreciate it. But without further ado, let's get to my interview with Dave. Dave, thanks for joining us on Impossible Trade-Offs. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation because we always have really interesting ones. But to start, um, I gave people a little bit of your intro in the intro that I did before we recorded this. But could you just share a little bit more about sort of your background and your career and the types of things you focused on? Yeah, for sure. So I am a lost humanities major, as many of us in trust and safety are. I ended up working in tech because I needed a job in California. Uh, and that sort of through a series of happenstances meant I ended up at Facebook pretty early on, uh, resetting people's passwords, which was extraordinarily boring. And so I ended up joining the team that uh, did the content moderation and was the, the company's 12th content moderator. Uh, and at that very early stage, there weren't a lot in the way of rules uh, because there hadn't needed to be, right? If, you're, if your site is largely for college students, hire a bunch of college students to moderate the other college students using Vibes is a totally reasonable plan. And the company was rapidly becoming not just a site for college students and was internationalizing. And so we we were having to add, they were having to add moderators very, very rapidly internally. And increasingly the customer support function was being sort of cannibalized to become the moderation function because you couldn't ignore that stuff. Uh, and also we were increasingly dealing with problems in other languages, in other markets and other cultural contexts besides American elite universities. Uh, and that mean, meant we needed a set of rules because we needed to coordinate that increasingly large set of people doing the moderation. It increasingly diverse set of contexts. And I ended up sort of putting my hand up for doing the project of trying to systematize how we were approaching all of this stuff. And, and now it's 15 years later. Um, no good deed goes unpunished. Correct. <laughs> yeah. it, um, th that, that project was not a project because no rules are perfect, uh, as I think one of your other questions foreshadows. And that very rapidly became a part-time job, became a full-time job, became a team, left in 2014 what, 13, went to a small startup that failed, then ended up going to Airbnb because some other Facebookers had ended up there and said, hey, this place is neat and has interesting problems. Built the community policy team there from the scratch, was the was the first person doing the policy part, not they had an extensive operation already, uh, but but no, no clear sort of systematized set of rules. Built the team to do that, up to a team of about 15 or 20 people, left uh, at 
the end of 2021, after that sort of first year of COVID, that was that was a lot at a travel company. Was at another small startup for about a year and then went to OpenAI again because someone I'd worked with previously at Airbnb was there and said, hey, this place is neat. That was great for a while, but very rapidly went from being a sleepy research startup to being a rocket ship of all rocket ships. Yes. Uh, I have the good fortune of being cursed to board things and they turn into rocket ships, which is a <laughs> lovely problem to have, uh, but is also incompatible with having small children and a wife who also works in trust and safety. And so I made the decision that is, I think, only really countercultural because I'm a man doing it publicly to step back slightly in a way that was more compatible with my family. I won't lie. I had a lot of people being like, what's the real story? Like why? I go, no, it's really family story. It's really family. Yes. The, the real story. I was very, very tired. And my wife was on a parallel journey, also works in trust and safety, also worked at Facebook and, and then ran this at Pinterest, runs the Trust and Safety Professionals Association, which is going really well. Uh, TrustCon was, is only two years old, was 850 people last year, was less than half the size the year before. That's wonderful. Um, was supposed to be her period for leaning in and we can't both lean in at the same time. That's not a real thing. It doesn't work. Uh, in my experience. And so it was my my turn to lead out because OpenAI is totally fine without me there, whereas TSBA is a much smaller organization and would be much less fine uh, if she had made that decision. So you, when you were talking through that, there's one thing that I think is important for us to talk through before we go into this a bit more, because you were talking about Airbnb already having an operations team. You were talking about the policy side. For folks that may not be familiar of inside of companies, could you talk a little bit about when we kind of talk about this trust and safety community standards space? There are a couple of different teams and stuff that people need to think about when when building these. Could you very briefly kind of map that out for folks so we kind of have that roadmap as we go through this? Yeah, absolutely. So and, and this isn't 100% the same everywhere, but it's it's actually pretty universal, I'd say. There are... So in any sort of trust and safety function, whether you're doing content moderation, the AI space, sharing economy, whatever, it doesn't really matter. You have... An operations team, meaning a set of people that actually do enforcing the rules, what they're doing varies a little bit based on the nature of the place. But generally speaking, they are looking at content or receiving customer complaints or preemptively reviewing model outputs, sort of whatever. All of these things are in some sense the same. They're looking at individual sort of widgets on the production line and making decisions about how to categorize those things and therefore how we're going to respond to them. Right. You're saying, okay, this goes in the hate speech bucket. So it gets the hate speech consequences, or this goes in the insurance fraud bucket. So it gets the insurance fraud consequences, or this goes in the bad robot is hallucinating. So it gets the like, don't do that response. There's that, that actual mechanical production line part of it that, that is talked about as operations. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's the part of it that really matters in the sense that that is where all of the rest of what I'm going to talk about becomes real and turns into actual actions the company is taking in public. Um, then you've got generally a policy team and other supporting infrastructure for those decisions where you're working out in advance, okay, what decisions do we want to make when things happen? Because given multiple decision makers on the operations team, as I talked about earlier in my sort of origin story, the key problem is getting all of those people to make similar decisions given a similar set of facts. Because if you can't keep all the people making the actual decisions on the same page, you don't have a policy. You just have kind of an expensive random number generator and you can't defend anything or explain what you're doing to Congress or any of the rest of it because you're not really in charge of it. So you have a policy team that figures out what you want to be doing. You have an operations team that actually does that. Uh, then generally speaking, there's some sort of tooling slash product team that builds the systems or integrates external systems or both 
uh, for the operations team to work in to actually do their work, as well as to do detection proactively so you're not just relying on the public complaining about bad things that happen. Um, and then often you have product teams that you're closely working with where their product design decisions have significant trust and safety impacts. Not all product design decisions do, um, but insofar as they do, there's often sort of allies or adjacent teams within the core product org who you're working with to try to make less risk exist in the first place. And I'd say that's that's basically the outline. Makes sense. Um, well, I know it is, but hopefully that makes sense to yeah. others as well. So when you were talking about the early days, so a lot of modern day conversation about content moderation, I swear everybody thinks it all started in 2016, no. um, which is far, far, far from the truth. And it, it didn't start in 2012. It started well before that. And I'm wondering if you can go a little bit deeper in terms of what that process was and some of the biggest challenges and trade-offs you all faced. Yeah, for sure. And you you should uh, you should get one of the eBay people on here because they, they're the like, they predate the great filter of the dot-com bubble. And uh, insist that they invented the the name specifically trust and safety. As far as I can tell, they're correct. Um, so that's you want a real ancient of days. Take go find somebody from eBay. From a sort of content moderation trade offs early on, it's honestly a lot of the same conversations we're having now, but fewer people cared, <laughs> and fewer people were paying attention because this at least at Facebook, was an outgrowth of customer support. And crust, customer support is not uh, glamorous or or well-paid or, or sexy or interesting. And so it was thought of as this kind of thing over there, and we want to do interesting product design. And that's not not necessarily to say that people were dismissive of it so much as it wasn't as much of a focus. Like the journey of the last 15 years has been content moderation moving from a fairly peripheral activity to being a much more central activity where important people were thinking thoughts about it. But the problems aren't new. It's the everybody else paying attention that's new. And so you were facing all of the same kinds of trade-offs around hate speech, around cultural values, around free expression, around who decides and how you make those decisions. Um, but the circle of people having the argument was a smaller circle of more internally focused people because uh, nobody else was paying attention. And the, and the story is one of ever expanding circles of people paying attention as we like caused catastrophes for other adjacent or, or as the, as the problem itself caused difficulties for other adjacent functions, right? So you expand first from customer service and some of the core like site integrity engineering functions to maybe then your, your PR teams, or your public policy teams start to pay attention. Then eventually, Oh wow, your your bigger deal product teams start to pay attention as the temperature of the criticism first grows beyond something that customer service can control and then grows beyond something that PR and public policy can control and eventually becomes a problem for everybody, whether they want to be involved or not. <laughs> um, and so it's it's very much the same set of challenges. It's the circle of people involved that has been expanding, I would say. Now that kind of goes into my next question because in general. I tend to see newer platforms and I feel like this was the same at Facebook. Like you start with some pretty simple community standards. Like sure. it's a bit more than do, don't do bad stuff, but like sometimes it's like not that much more. Not that much more. And then they tend to get more complicated over time. And you start to see companies and platforms twist themselves into pretzels to try to contort to whatever all the different competing, like as you said, as that circle of interest 
grows, you're trying eventually encompasses the Senate. Yes. And then you have policy senators like, how do you make money? Well, we sell ads, Senator, like and you're explaining what a Finsta is to Senator Blumenthal and what that looks like. But I'm curious why you think that is. Is it just because of all the competing people that are starting to pay attention and trying to please them? Or why do you think they start to get more complicated? There's two things. So I think the process of expanding level of specificity and detail is not just because of the expanding audience. It's more because you see more things, right? So if you've never done this before, which most of the people doing this at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, which all started around the same time, 2004, 2005. And so we're on fairly parallel journeys as we as a as a public were on the same journey. Um, most of us doing it at those places had never done this before. And so if you're starting from a, a place of never doing it before, you sit down and write up everything you've seen and had to have a dispute with your colleagues about where you need to get everybody on the same page. And then you, if you're reasonably smarter, like, okay, what are other things that we can imaginatively foresee that are going to happen, even if they haven't come up, come, come up yet? So let's be a little categorical about this. Let's not just write the policy as like a list of specific outcomes, although sometimes people start that way. In fact, when I took over at Facebook, it was basically a single page list of specific outcomes. Like nudity is bad, so is Hitler. Why? Not explained. How do you generalize? Is is Stalin like Hitler? We don't know, right? Um, So, okay, let's generalize that to a set of categories so you can sort unexpected things. But that generalization is limited by what you've seen so far and how... uh, how imaginative you are. And even if you're pretty imaginative, the entire internet of billions of people working overtime to come up with new ways to do stupid things is uh, more imaginative than you, right? Like you're, it's evil monkeys typing Shakespeare, evil Shakespeare. And you're, you're up against essentially a gigantic reservoir of time and creativity and attention. And so no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you've seen, there is, there's sort of always more in heaven and earth. And as a result, you add to the rules, right? Like you, over time, see more things, expand the rules, do some major refactors. I'm like, okay, now this version is going to work. And, and that process grows. And then also, at the same time, more and more people show up and have opinions and more and more competing values are trying to be worked out in those rules. So even if nobody else cared, you would have this expansion of specificity because like more random weird corner cases would show up. And then on top of that, you're trying to integrate more competing needs, values, power centers, whatever you want to call it, into that system. So there's this sort of double complexity adding factor that that tends to kick in over time. Yeah, that point about needing to have like specific policies and the the types of content you might see kind of constantly changing is something Yoel Roth and I talked about yeah. on the podcast earlier. And we were talking about some of the differences of how they at Twitter approach this versus my experience at Meta. And I don't know if it was yours at your time too, yeah. which was sort of this sort of this, like, do we follow the letter of the law of our community standards, which is kind of the Twitter approach, which had its own trade-offs because if something new popped up and you didn't have it into the policies, what do you do versus Facebook kind of like to take a spirit of the policy thing so that when yeah. the Tide Pods challenge, for instance, pops up and it doesn't fit cleanly in your policies, you're like, it gives us wiggle room of being like, that seems like it's bad and we should yeah. take that down, even though we don't have a specific rule to point to people of like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be eating Tide Pods. Yes. Well, that one, that one's nice and value neutral, right? Like, I don't think there's like team tie, eat Tide Pods in, in, in Congress. That's true. It gets much harder when you think about other things too right. that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say, I think I, I disagree with you well about this a little, 
but not in the, but in the sense that I think I'm an integrationist in that I um I don't think you have to choose between those approaches. Uh, I think you should th- policy is not a written document. Policy is an activity you do. You don't write a set of policies and then you're done and you leave. You do policy um, and you must do policy continuously. My joke is this is why we're all not consultants, although ironically, I now am one. We both are. So I don't know. <laughs> but you, you need an internal function that does practicing policy continuously over time. And that's, to me, how you integrate this question of specificity versus spirit, um, because the doing of the activity is manifesting as a list of current specifics, the vibe that you are trying to reach and will never fully get to. So you you need to make a specific list because the big operations team, and this is more true the bigger it gets, can only run on specific instructions. Like it it can't do vibes. It, that is chaos um, because the, all the individual decision makers will not interpret those things the same way. So you have to produce a specific list, but at the meta level of the policy team that produces that list, you don't have to treat the list as sacred. The list is the current best version of, it's the least shitty thing you've written so far, right? It's it's Churchill on democracy. It's just the least worst answer. Yeah. And so it should always be open to being revised when new facts come up. But But the task is rendering your vibes into specific instructions. And if you cannot render a vibe into a specific instruction, in my view, you shouldn't do it because all you're doing is making a false promise because the big machine won't do the vibe because it can only do specific instructions. And that's that's sort of how I connect those two ends of it. This is one of the things when I'm talking to people that haven't worked in tech and like particularly, you know, I get a lot of questions about election policies and stuff like that. And I try to explain like they're living and breathing things like they're going to keep evolving. And I think a lot of people want, they're like, I want this set of rules, don't have the rules changed. And it's like, that's just not how real life works in this. None of us are that (laughs) smart. None of us are as smart as all of us, right? Which which is like really obvious when you frame it that way. Like functionally half the people use a Facebook product. And no matter how smart you think you are, you're not as smart as half the people, given just the amount of time they have to come up with weird shit you didn't think of, right? Like, it's, you know, you're uh, my entire lifetime of weird content policy thinking uh, on the oppositional side of coming up with bad stuff has happened during the 15 minutes we've been talking. Oh, yeah. On a meta. It's an everything machine. Everything that could possibly ever happen is going to happen during this podcast. And when you're up against that, the idea that you could reach perfect, even setting aside that the technology changes, which changes the risks, society changes about what is acceptable, which changes the target, you know, and your competitive landscape changes, even setting those things aside, the idea that you could reach perfect against 3 billion people is, I think we all know ridiculous once you frame it that way. Totally. And another balance or trade-off I know that I talk about a lot and a lot of people talk about is this protecting freedom of expression in safety. And I'm curious if you even think that's a trade-off as well and and how you approach that. I think it is a trade-off, but I have a maybe contrarian take here, which is it is sometimes framed as a problem that there is tension between government and private interests around this question. I think that tension's good, actually. And my understanding of the history and purpose of sort of free expression as a as a broader theme in our societies, which I think is good, um, is that that civil society in the sense of uh, non-governmental actors are exactly the place to be working out free expression trade-offs like that. The whole conceit of newspapers 
is that they do decide what to publish and they're not the government. And that's good, actually. It, it, free expression doesn't mean no one ever gatekeeps what speech is created or, or distributed, right? We have always had gatekeepers. We have always had polite society. We have always had the notion of shunning people. In fact, historically, there were vastly more things you would get shunned for than there are now in the long scope of history. Many of those things were bad, and I'm glad we don't shun people for them anymore. But I think it is good that the keys to the sort of censorship machine, the speech distribution machine, and the keys to the prisons are not on the same key ring, right? It is a good thing that the government and the people in charge of the military and the jails and the actual justice system where you lose your freedom and the people in charge of what you can shitpost are different people. And I'll go further. I think it's probably good to hate each other. I think it would not be good for those things to be too closely aligned because the tension between them is part of accountability for each end of that spectrum in, in my view. So like, let them fight. <laughs> like fighting is good is my is my take here. Well, and to your point, I mean, people who have been studying the information environment will go back to, you know, revolutionary. Day. Like this is not new. There was yellow journalism. There was all this stuff. Most journalism is yellow historically. Not yellow journalism is the weird aberration. That's like was like 40 years after the Second World War. Yeah, it's it's not that it's it's still pretty new in some ways, if you think about that, like in terms of the grand scheme of things yeah. of, of time and all of that. Um, and I do think that we as a society are rebuilding these societal norms of how we want to hold people accountable for that speech. So it makes sense that we continue like, again, if these things were easy, we would have all got in a room and figured, you know, got figured it out. And they're not. Right. All the easy stuff has been solved, right? No one is having big complaints and hearings about spam because everybody's like, that's bad. We Nobody likes that. Team Pro Spam is a group of organized criminals that everybody hates. And so no one listens to them. All right. So now I want to go into my favorite topic, which is elections and politics, which is always a fun and messy, messy thing to kind of talk about um, where nobody seems to be happy how they're handling it. A lot of platforms are like they're like some of them, I think, want to stick their head in the sand and just be like, no, we're for entertainment. We're not going to have this stuff happen. And everyone else is like, hold my beer. Like it's going to it's going to happen. And so I'm curious if you were at a platform now or kind of advising one, how would you be advising them to approach these issues as we go into this sort of huge election year? So it really depends on the nature of the platform. Um, and I, I think that's true in general on all of this, right? Like the, the very largest platforms that probably consume the most mind share of your audience, I agree with you, avoiding politics entirely is probably a fool's errand. If you're Pinterest... And you want to target being for cooking and like cupcakes and home craft projects. Like, honestly, that's great. And you should do that. And that is a lot less work for you. And that is an achievable project given the entire history of the company, how it positions itself, its internal culture. Like, cool, go for it. And, and similarly, if you're Airbnb, not that politics never come up. They do, right? Uh, you know, you'll have hosts or guests refuse to stay with people because of their political affiliation or their the political posters they have in their house or whatever. So it's not that it never comes up, but it comes up a lot less. And if you happen to have a platform where the nature of the service and its market fit is one where it comes up a lot less, my honest advice would be <laughs> go all in on not dealing with this problem and try to dodge it and minimize it as much as possible because it's inherently upsetting to like 50-ish percent of everybody in the country. And that sucks if you're trying to be kind of broadly palatable. Right. So if you can get out of it, get out of it. 
But you have to be really clear about whether you can get out of it because a lot of platforms can't because their market is too broad or they're too multi-purpose. And if your market is too broad and you're too multi-purpose, you're then having to deal with it. And that then becomes a much more complicated problem where you should sort of go in the radical opposite direction. And instead of sticking your head in the sand, just acknowledge that this is going to exist and it's going to hurt and be as explicit with everybody about what your values are as possible. And I would also say, try to pick a set of lines you are confident that you will be able to stick to even under extreme duress, because the duress will come. And the only thing flip-flopping gets you is no one respects you at all anymore. Whereas if you even pick something that is opinionated and, and sort of has a perspective that not everybody will share, but you at least clearly mean it and you dig in even under fire that there's some amount of respect you can gain from that. Don't try to be everything to everyone. It's the, um, the Churchill again, right? Like you can't please all the people all the time, um, but you can alienate everybody by switching your position a lot, right? You can definitely displease everyone a lot. Uh, and that seems like a fail condition. And I, I think some of the larger platforms, including maybe some of our former employers, have somewhat gotten themselves into a position of, having tried to be all things to all people, which is doomed, and therefore you're in a harder position than if you just sort of picked a lane and stuck to the lane and taking your lumps. Well, that's where it kind of goes to turning into a contortionist, right? And like getting stuck in all those pretzels and that there's this viewpoint of people had, well, we'll be a neutral party. And it's like, that that doesn't really exist because you're making every choice that you make, even if you're on a team that doesn't deal with politics, but you're designing a new product, like it's going to be used by these, by political candidates or parties or organizations and in groups. And like, I think, you know, rethinking what that means and like also this concept you know you hear it from republicans all the time of like well you're taking down more republican content than democratic content it should be more fair and it's like that's not how it works it's not a 50 50 thing we have rules and if different people are violating them in different ways it's you're not going to have equal numbers well th that's exactly that's exactly right in the same way that you wouldn't expect that in a space that was uh oriented towards a particular set of values if those values were perceived as more republican aligned uh i'll also say i mean uh, bluntly, Facebook's rules on hate speech, as far as I still understand what they are internally from various leaks, haven't changed terribly much since I wrote them in like 2010 by reading the Wikipedia article on like workplace harassment law. Like they're, they're not that different. They're more nuanced. They're more sort of embroidered. The, there are tiny leaves out at the edges of the trees, but like the trunk of the tree the, in the main it's basically the same idea as it was in 2009, but I would observationally think a certain side of the political aisle is a lot more upset about it than it was in 2009. And that's not because the rules have changed. It's because our speech environment and the distribution of different kinds of speech has changed in the last 15 or 20 years, right? It's not that the rules have tightened and become more restrictive around conservatives. If anything, they've been loosened slightly uh, to try to accommodate more people. What has changed is the the level of coarseness of our political rhetoric, of, of acceptable mainstream political rhetoric. And so more people are running into the rules and then expecting and being surprised when they do. I don't know how you solve that as a problem, but it's a, it's a different phenomenon that I think people expect, right? There's not been this tightening ratchet, at least in my perception, of the wokeness of the rules. It's been an increasing rebellion against certain kinds of speech norms, Um regardless of whether you think of that as good or bad. Um, 
it's worth being clear on where the where the movement is versus where the standing still is occurring. I'm curious what you think about the oversight board and that experiment that yeah. that has been doing. Um, I think the oversight board is a cool idea that leaves a lot of potential on the table. I think the idea of externalizing the governance of these things is there's clear reasons that's useful and valuable. I don't know that I always think that those reasons are what everybody intuitively expects, right? So I don't know that I think the oversight board or something like the oversight board is a recipe for making better speech decisions. I think it's a recipe for forcing civil society and international human rights law actors to be in the mud making the decisions in a way that builds credibility with that audience because it is their own people, their own tribe, in some sense, who made the decisions instead of the technocratic tribes that you and I represent. And I, I don't I don't mean to run it down and saying that, right? Like, I don't know that the Oversight Board is producing stunningly novel interpretations of the rules. And sometimes I think their interpretations are more impractical. Um, but the fact that they're doing them a public process, they're using international human rights law frameworks doing it, and the people doing that process are from that international human rights background is valuable as a as a bridge to that community, which very rightly has a lot of opinions about how the platforms make decisions. On the flip side, I think the board should include more technocratic experts who understand how these things work internally, because sometimes the board's communication back to the company, insofar as I see it publicly, is disconnected from what the machinery the company has is capable of doing in a way that is frustrating. And and it's very easy to say, oh, well, figure it out. We want the machinery to adapt to the the universe that we want. But like that, that's not how industrial systems work. They they have their own limits. They have their own uh, features and quirks and edges and things they're good at and things they're not very good at. And you do have to sort of write the music for the instrument you have, not the instrument you wish you had. Um, and the board sometimes writes music for an instrument it wishes it had. Yeah, I love that because I the number of times that I've seen, I I I love a lot of their work, but yeah, the number of times I see a, a, a ruling or whatever or advice or come down, and I'm just like, I don't even know how you implement that. Right, like I I can't. I'm real good at this, and I can't figure out how I would do that. It's not that I disagree with it; it's that I don't know how to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, it's not real, and it doesn't count for points. Well, and you're right that that would be another great next step of because then otherwise you just have meta being like, I'm implementing 50% of this or, you know, it's a black box. You don't know. And it's like to be able to have that explanation to bridge that last, I've been using the football term 20 yards between those two things to help people understand, like, that's the really hard part. That's where we like connecting those dots. Oh, it's yeah. That's the part with the most constraints um, because it doesn't function the way our intuitions function. I, I also I think it's a missed opportunity for the board. So it often gets framed as frustrating from like people's, you know, our kind of people's perspective. But it's a missed opportunity for the board from an accountability creation point of view. Because if they were giving suggestions that could be done, then when Facebook doesn't do them, people like you and I can be like, hey, that's you're choosing to not yeah. do that. Whereas when you give, give when, when the board delivers sort of advice or, or prescriptions that kind of sort of can't fully be done, there's this fuzziness where you can hide. Am I not doing this because I don't want to do it or am I not doing it because I can't do it? Whereas if you were sharper on that, then when, when Facebook is dodging, it's actually more clear from an external accountability point of view. So it's a missed opportunity given the board's own purposes. Uh, 
which I think is, I, I think they know this. I think they're working on it, but it, it's a gap that needs to be. Closed. Totally. Well, let's jump over to OpenAI, another one of those sleepy turned rocket ships that you, you jumped on. And we're not going to get into all the Sam Altman drama because Lord knows by the time that um, this publishes um, where or what everything could be at. But I did want to dig into a conversation. I know, I don't know anything more about that than the things Casey Newton tells me. So yeah, exactly. I always love like reporters. I'm like, I don't know, like current employees aren't calling me up, giving me all the dish. Right. Like I'm not, thanks for calling and asking. They get fired for that. Yeah, exactly. But one of the conversations we had been having on WhatsApp was around sort of what, how these board actions might actually have an impact the safety space, because, mm-hmm. you know, I worry that a cynic's going to look at this and be like business and trust and safety can't mix. Like they're never going to mix like you business concerns are always going to win out. And this, so that was like a week or so ago. I'm curious if you still think that knowing where we are now, which is currently Sam is back as CEO, they've got a somewhat new board and they're continuing to build that out. Do you think this could be a setback for trust and safety or do you think it'll be a little bit of a blip? I So this is very much me as an external observer. I actually think it's less of a problem for practical trust and safety in the way that we've been talking about and more of a problem if you're very worried about existential risk. Uh, because the sort of concerns the board was channeling in my understanding and also sort of the EA perspective on AI which is, is effective altruism for folks yes, who might not know what EA is. And, yeah. and two of the board members, uh, two of the three board members involved were sort of heavily effective altruism aligned in my understanding, having met one of them one time at a cocktail party. Um, the, I, I think that it was not great for effective altruism in a year that has not been full of good looks for effective altruism generally, in the sense that they picked a pretty high focus profile fight and 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 lost that fight. Uh, and I don't think, at least in terms of the public perception, again, sort of perceiving what was being said externally, what was being reported externally, don't seem like they covered themselves in glory in terms of explaining why they took the actions they took in a way that was understandable to either the employee base, including sort of effective altruist adjacent or sympathetic people within the company, uh, or sort of more practical minded safety folks, right? Like, you have to remember 95% of employees signed that like, screw this, we're with Sam letter. And OpenAI is a place where there's a lot of people who either are EAs or are EA sympathetic. And so you do not get to 95% of people signing that letter without it including a bunch of people whose priors otherwise line up with the board. So independent of what you think ought to happen, uh, it was not well done. <laughs> and that I think is is not great as a look. I think it wasn't great as a look for alternative board governance structures either, which I think is a shame because I think the trying to think through what more B Corp adjacent, and maybe it should have just been a B Corp, but more sort of B Corp adjacent approaches to governance of some of these technologies is interesting in the same way that the oversight board is interesting, right? Like I think those things are interesting in similar ways Um, The oversight board doesn't sort of fully have those legal teeth ultimately, but if you coupled something like an oversight board with a structure that gave it more legal teeth beyond optimizing for shareholders, maybe that's good. Maybe that starts to sort of look like a, a parallel democratic system that is not under the control of governments fully but it's more representative of popular will solve some problems about power distribution. Like I, I think that's really interesting. And I think the whole thing was sort of a tragedy for the open AI structure as an experiment 
as a, as a high profile, maybe credible experiment towards that. So that, that was kind of a bummer. I don't know that I think it was super catastrophic from a practical everyday safety point of view, because the teams doing that were already the teams embedded within the commercialization part of the business anyway. And so I think whether or not it's, it's a bummer from a trust and safety point of view will be much more how the aftermath of it plays out within the very unified employee base, which very much included the trust and safety team that was there on sort of broadly what I would characterize Team Sam, just looking at the names of who signed the external letter. And so I think that part of it is more of a how does that play out in terms of the credibility internally of raising safety concerns? It does this become a way of saying like, well, don't act like the board. Or is it more like that those external people were kind of nuts and we all agree on a practical version of safety? Again, if you're worried about Skynet, maybe that's still bad. But if what you're mostly worried about is people doing election interference and making hate speech and revenge porn, it's not clear to me that it's actually a super bad thing, uh, at least in the immediate term. It'll depend on how it plays out inside the company. Now, I'm curious, um, having done what you did at Facebook and other companies and now and then being at an AI company, how is doing this sort of trust and safety work different yep. with AI than how people might think about it for online platforms? So this is going to sound strange, uh, but it's actually in some ways easier with the products as currently designed. So if you've got a social media platform or even just a, a multi, multi-user messaging platform, right, you've got what you're running WhatsApp or Messenger or whatever. You can have group threads, you can have people talking to other people, even a one-to-one conversation, there's two humans involved, so one of them can abuse the other person. ChatGPT right now is mostly a single-player experience. It's me talking to a robot, and I can't abuse the robot because it's not a person yet and can't experience harms. Um, And so actually, if you think about the overall amount of product risk, like, yes, the AI risk is novel, but I can't bully nobody who I'm not talking to which is currently the extent of the people you can talk to. You can talk to nobody. Um, there's some more risk for the company because they're responsible for what one half of the conversation says, but you also have control, at least to a pretty great degree, over what that half of the conversation says. And you can do things like a reinforcement learning with human feedback or reinforcement learning with AI feedback, which gets called constitutional AI, to try to train the machine to not do certain things. And then you can layer on all of your, your traditional trust and safety techniques. So in the products as currently designed in the first party context, I think they're largely lower risk than a wide open social platform where anybody can interact with anybody. I mean, think of like live video. It's like insanely more risky compared to ChatGPT. I don't think those things are going to stay in their walled garden or first party, right? We're going to end up with everybody has Jarvis and your Jarvis can call your dentist. And if your Jarvis can call your dentist, uh, your Jarvis can also call your ex and harass them. So it, it like th- those constraints are not going to stay in place. At which so basically when we go. build our own rob- robots and we unleash them onto other people, then you just have a robot in between. It's, it's a different. Right, the robot's going to be able to actually abuse someone right now. ChatGPT can like tell you a joke that OpenAI doesn't want to tell you because it's a bad look, but like you had to shake it until the racism came out, right? Someone else can't racism at you using the robot. Like you're doing it to yourself. You don't want it to do that unexpectedly. And and there was a period where with LLMs, not even that long ago, would tend to go in sort of sexual or problematic directions over time, uh, even if you didn't want that. And and that could be a problem experience, problematic experience. That that version of the drift problem is like largely solved. At this point, if someone's like, oh, I got ChatGPT to say this offensive thing, they they had to try pretty hard. 
So in a, in a single player experience, you're like, okay, that's not too bad. Now, one, it's not going to stay single player. Two, they also serve an API. So if you're talking about third party developers building on top of the language model, all of the things that I just said fall apart. And that is a potentially much more risky dynamic. Even there, you have more lovers of control than you do in the social media context because you're not really concerned with what people ask the robot. You're concerned with what it returns. And there's all kinds of fine tuning and, and reinforcement learning you can do to try to limit how problematic it is. That's not perfect, but you don't need to be perfect. You need to get it to be pretty good at not going in that direction. And then you layer on a strike system using classifier detection the way you would on a social network. And you just don't give people infinite chances to get the robot to be offensive. And when you pair those things together, that starts to be a pretty solid uh, system. But, it, but it's still a work in progress. But those things take time. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's, I think, the big thing of like, again, one of the challenges and frustrations I have when you talk to policymakers or people outside the tech companies is like, they just want the, the switch to be flipped and not have the bad things happen. And it's sort of like these things happen over time in terms of yep. trying to figure this out. Yeah, the technique, we're still very much in a phase of technique development. Um, I think there's very much promise in using the models themselves to do content moderation, at least some parts of content moderation. So there are two basic kinds of content moderation problems. There are problems that are in the content and there are problems that are outside the content but are facts about the content. And so, for example, um, nudity is in a photo, right? Whereas misinformation is not really in the photo, or, you know, sometimes there are particular narratives you can recognize, but something being incorrect is about its correspondence to the external world. It's not about its features in and of itself, right? So, you know, you could have a photo of a bunch of children and those photo might those children might not really exist because they were AI generated. Maybe that's not a real problem, but the falseness isn't in the photo. It's the fact that there are no real children who were photographed, right? Um, and about content problems, those external content problems are way harder to deal with than the in-content problems. That's true for AI, but that's also true for social media, right? Real names are a version of this. What a real name is, is just an arbitrary list of things we call people. There's no way to deduce that a, that a string of characters is a real name from the string of characters. You can't teach a moderator to recognize it. AI is not going to be all that helpful with those about content problems because it isn't really any better at that than, than people are. It may make us much better at the in-content problems in, in the short term um, because it's able to do that pattern recognition on the content itself much faster with a higher degree of precision than people are have been able to with with less trauma to them. So that's really exciting. Figuring out about content is going to be harder, but that was already harder. Um, that's not actually unique to AI. We're, we're bad at that too, because it's not really a problem of AI versus human intelligence. It's a problem of what you can observe, whether you're a human observer looking at the content or a machine observer looking at the content and what facts are manifest in the material itself versus you need to know some other information that you need to source from somewhere in order to adjudicate. So last question, what things are you most worried about going into next year and what are you hopeful about? I mean, I'm most worried about the actual absolute outcome of the election, which is not a trusted safety answer. Just um, U.S. I'm also worried about all of them around the world. Like, Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I am. Maybe this is too U.S. centric of me, but I am kind of of the opinion that if the U.S. election works out OK, probably will be fine globally eventually. And if it doesn't work out OK, 
<laughs> we might not be fine. Um, so I have a high amount of anxiety about that. But I, I agree with you, all of the elections. Um, I'm anxious about the impact of AI on the narrative of the security of the elections, even if it plays no role. So like, I'm actually mildly skeptical of the impact, at least of LLMs, on the 2024 elections in particular. I'm not positive they're going to really... In the same way that like it kind of turned out that Cambridge Analytica mattered a lot in terms of how people felt about the outcome. But, but it didn't, didn't do much of anything. It didn't do that much. And I, th- I suspect we may be in a similar situation and it may be just as irrelevant in that I'm not super convinced that LLMs, at least, are going to have a huge impact on the election outcome itself. But the fact that they exist and could have that outcome and no one knows whether they did creates this sort of shadow that we will all chase no matter what happens. Like, do you have any doubt in your mind that the whoever loses the election will say AI was against us and that's why we lost? I think both the winner and the loser will say the winner will say AI helped me win and the losers will say this is why, Dave, I don't know if I showed you my sticker, the panic responsibly. <laughs> I actually created the the URL. There's a merch site. You can go to panicresponsibly.com and get a T-shirt and all of that. And because to your point, I'm very nervous about the narrative part. Like, I just think that like, it's going to be, and I don't, I worry that the media and others who are perpetuating it, and I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it, because of course, we should talk about it. But like, I worry about how that's going to make people even if it had no impact, people are gonna be like, Oh, it's those AI things like that caused caused the problems. Yes, it's, uh, it's the narrative equivalent of evil spirits in, in the same way that disinformation is, which is not to say it's not a problem. It's the um, perception problems and reality problems are just totally different things. And they're both problems on their own terms. They both have dignity uh, as problems. Oh, man, I had a flashback to many meetings I had at Facebook where that question was asked. Is this a perception problem or is this a reality problem? And, and like and the solutions were different. <laughs> Right. That's exactly my, my point is that they are they're both uh, actual. Right. And they are both need to be solved. But the tools you use to solve them are not the same. And I'm sort of mid to maybe even not that concerned on the reality problem of AI, although I think audio models are slept on from a reality point of view. But I am hugely concerned about the perception problems created by AI. I think you're already seeing this. I don't know how closely you followed some of the initial discourse around the Gaza sort yeah. of stuff. But there was a whole series of, A, fake images that were shared, none of which were AI generated. Interestingly, they were from old video games or from other conflicts in the past. So none of the actual fake stuff that was distributed was AI generated. But then there was real stuff that got accused of being AI generated, even though as far as we can tell, it wasn't, is at least my non-expert understanding of the situation there. But the specter of it being possible that it was AI generated was disqualifying against real information. So the, the fake folks didn't need more fake nonsense. We already had a lot of nonsense. Whereas team reality was discredited simply by the specter of the existence of AI. It's a We would just watch The Lord of the Rings over Thanksgiving. It's like the, It's like the shadow of a nameless fear. Uh, coming out of Mordor. Like it doesn't, it's it's vibes, but the vibe itself has a real impact. All right. So what do you feel hopeful about? Let's end on a good note. Um, well, one, I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful because I think the reality problem is probably less bad than everybody thinks. So that's, it could be worse. Um, that, that could be much worse. Um, I, oh gosh, what else am I hopeful about? I am really, really hopeful about using these tools to do trust and safety. I think there's a bunch of 
there's a blog post we published or OpenAI published right after I left that was about a bunch of work we'd done uh, using GPT-4 to do content moderation. And I think it is not fully understood in the public unless you're really in the weeds on this stuff, um, how potentially transformative large models are for moderation. The Going back to my point about how all of this is about regimenting uh, hundreds or thousands of decision makers, and if you can't do that, nothing matters. A, a way of solving that problem is not having to regiment hundreds or thousands of decision makers. And if so, we, if we could get to the point where we could use a language model to read a set of content and instructions, content moderation instructions, the way a human would, and do a set of actions that it can explain as well or better than a human, it's going to fundamentally change the way we design all of our trust and safety systems. Uh, because those systems, the speed at which they can operate, the speed at which they can adapt to new problems, how long it takes to roll out new instructions, the massive amount of training quality you have to do, how quickly you can label a body of content, all of those things are constraints created by the human labor force needed to produce the labels. And if you could use LLMs to maybe not make human labeling go away, but reduce the number of people you needed to have be involved by like two orders of magnitude. So you could go from 50,000 people to 500 people. It will completely change the way all of this works for the better because it will speed up defense very, very, very dramatically. And a big part of the problem here is the cumbersomeness of our defensive solutions. And if this allows us to get to more elegant defensive solutions, in addition to saving a lot of individual human labelers, the emotional trauma of dealing with the content, which I have a personal interest in, uh, it it will change the way you design all of the systems that rely on that human labeling input in a way that could be awesome. And so I am very, very hopeful about the developments there over the next one to five years. Um, Samid Chakrabadi and I are doing, a, um, who used to run Civic Integrity at uh, Meta, are doing a fellowship over at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And that's one of the things we're... Oh, I didn't know you two were working together on that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's, so I'm having, I'm having a good time. Because uh, my, my, only, my only taskmaster is Samid, who is, uh, you know, m more forgiving than, than what I'm used to. So <laughs> Yes. Although I'd love to be a fly on that wall, having had a lot of these conversations with Samid and everything. Um, but anyways, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Tradeoffs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much.